From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Ellis Avery, and I'm here to read to you from my second novel, The Last Nude. The Last Nude is about the Art Deco painter Tamara de Lempica. If you get a chance to take a look at her work, look up her painting Auto Portrait to see her self-portrait. And please take a look at Beautiful Raffaella, which is her most famous painting, and it's from 1927. Tamara de Lempica was a Russo-Polish painter active in Paris in the 20s and 30s. And Beautiful Raffaella is cubist, it's sensual, it's gorgeous. Take a look at it. This is the painting that inspired my book. I saw this painting in London in 2004 at the Tamara de Lempica show at the Royal Academy in London. I was flabbergasted by its beauty. And then I was flabbergasted when I read the caption uh, under the painting, it said that the artist met the model on a walk in the Bois de Boulogne in 1927. So she picked up this girl in a public park in 1927 in Paris, drove her back to the studio. This girl became her model and her lover, and their relationship yielded six paintings. I was very surprised to see this caption. I was I couldn't believe I was seeing it at a major art museum and not in a little feminist art museum off in the corner. I was delighted and startled and a little thrown off my game and had to get back on track, go back and keep on working on my first novel, promising myself I'd come back to this one. I found Tamara de Lempica's Carol de Grisonne, and if the story wasn't good already, the very last painting that de Lempica was working on when she died in 1980 was a copy of this 1927 beautiful Raffaella, and that gave me goosebumps. 53 years later, this girl was on her mind. So I felt like I'd been given this novel with bows and ribbons on it, go write me. So I wrote it. The novel is the story of the affair in 1927 from the model's point of view. And then it's the story of Tamara de Lempica's last day in 1980, working on this copy of Beautiful Raffaella from the painter's own point of view. So I'm going to read to you from the very beginning of the novel. I only met Tamara de Lempica because I needed 100 francs. This was 16 years ago. I had just learned that if I had a black dress with a white collar, I could take over my flatmate's department store job. In 1927, you could get a bed or a bicycle for 300 francs. 100 was a fair price to pay for a ready-made dress, but I didn't have it. I would try my friend Maggie first. I had given her money once when she needed to see a doctor. After my interview at the department store, I looked for her in the Bois de Boulogne. Maggie went by the name of her place of employment, a magnolia tree on the southernmost lip of the bigger lake, close to the road. I could see a man turn as I walked by, and as I approached the magnolia tree, where was Maggie, I could see another, a man in a fiacre, pointing me out to his driver. For my part, I couldn't help but notice the jewel-green motor car parked on the grass up ahead, out of which emerged a woman with a dog. They formed a triangle at the edge of the trees, Greyhound, green Bugatti, slim, stylish woman. Her bobbed hair gleamed pale beneath an exquisitely useless aviator's hood done in putty-colored kid. Her dog's whole body strained toward the trees, and yet he stood as still as a hound in a medieval tapestry, quivering patiently until the woman unclipped his leash. He looked up at her, waiting. Vazi, she cried, and the dog vanished into the green, a long-bodied blur. I reached the neck of land between the two lakes and saw neither Maggie nor the overdressed boyfriend she sometimes brought along. I would walk as far as the Chinese pavilion on the island, I decided, and if I didn't see Maggie when I came back, 
I'd give up and ask my flatmate, Jin, for the money. Unfortunately, I couldn't ask Jin for her uniform. Jin had the boyish, bird-like looks that were in vogue then, while next to her, I felt heavily, irredeemably New York Italian. But if she could give me both of her uniforms, I thought, maybe I could use fabric from one to work gores into the other. That would take time, though, and I needed the dress first thing the next morning. The sunlight broke the lake into a thousand hard-edged mirrors, but the pines were cool overhead, their needles fragrant on the ground. One of the men on the path said something to me, and I looked away. But then I heard footsteps behind me and a woman's voice. Where did you get your dress, mademoiselle? I had chosen my lucky blue dress for the interview at Belle Jardinière precisely because it often drew comment. I looked back. It was the woman with the green car. She didn't speak French like a French person, but she spoke it better than I did. I made it, I said, struck shy by her beauty and her obvious wealth. In her twenties, the woman stood as tautly slender as her greyhound, yet her Eastern European features suggested a fleshy, languid ease. Comme c'est joli, she said. I pointed at the Bugatti. I was just admiring. I said, or hoped I said, It's not mine. Should I speak Italian to you? English? English, I guess, I said in English, embarrassed. But I switched back to French, explaining, I try to practice, but I am thinking I might buy myself a car like this one, she said. Her English was like sandpaper, Slavic, and pained. That's why her French sounded strange, I thought. Was she Russian? Would you like to help me try it out? I laughed uncomfortably and looked over at Maggie's tree. No Maggie, so I lingered with the woman as she called her dog. Sefa. Sefa? I had to repeat the woman's explanation out loud to understand it. Zivest wind? Oh, I said, catching on. More gale than Zephyr, Sefa suddenly burst out of the trees, carrying a bloodied rabbit. He tossed his prey to the ground and rolled around on the torn body, legs in the air. No, Sefa, that's enough, the woman said in French, and the dog stood, trembling. He was slow to let her open his jaws and pry something out. When she leashed him, he stood close by her side, near the car, but looked back, open-mouthed. The top of the car was down. The woman reached inside for a copy of Le Temps and opened the sheet of newsprint across her dog's back. She wiped the blood off him, and he whined when the corners of the paper nipped his legs. In, she said, and in two leaps the greyhound was helming the back seat, eyes and nose trained on his relinquished prize. See, she said to me, now we can go anywhere you like. You're kidding, I said, laughing again. The woman laughed too, but her gloved hands wound together. Her red mouth moved before she spoke. She seemed afraid she might offend me. She looked down at my sad old shoes, and suddenly I knew we were thinking the same thing. She had money, and I needed it. It was the Bois de Boulogne, after all. What was she doing here? I ask because you are beautiful, she said, and I am a painter. I paint nudes. Please, may I give you my card? May I paint you sometime? Was that all, then? I looked at her carefully. Whatever she had in mind, I figured I could get out of it if I needed to. The woman was named Tamara, she said. Her studio was in the seventh, a quick ride. Her car shone bottle green, a praying mantis, a cunning toy. As I stared at it, a man in a fedora addressed me in flat Chicago English. Well, can I paint you too? I glanced over at him, a natalie-dressed Midwestern boy, standing too close but smiling so helpfully, I felt a spike of pity for him. I relished it. Sorry, Charlie, I sing-songed, and then somebody called to him in French. I watched the American and his friend spar in greeting, like boxers, glancing over at me from time to time. It felt good to harden my face against them the way Tamara did, to turn away, 
and toward a car that wasn't a taxi cab at that. I looked up at her. Would you think about it, she said. For a hundred francs? I would do it, I said. I would do it right now. A hundred francs for five hours, yes? I could have Jin's job and owe her nothing. I looked back again toward Maggie's tree. Still no Maggie. Let's go, I said. It was a warm day, but between the coubois and the open car, my summer dress was what seemed impractical, not Tamara's thin cape and aviator's hood, not even her long driving gloves. I felt a little breathless in my gray leather seat. I'd never gone so fast before. At one stoplight, Tamara asked my name and wrote herself a note. Raffaella, she repeated, drawing out the middle two syllables. She had a stainless steel mechanical pencil and a creamy little notebook. I wanted both. At another stoplight, she reapplied her lipstick. I had never seen a mouth so red. Her bloodied gloves were the pale yellow of her hair, her cape and hood the gray of her heavy-lidded eyes. The trees flashed by. As my skin puckered into goose flesh, I was glad for the heat that seeped into my thighs, glad again when we burst into an open field and briefly heat poured into me through the windscreen. I leaned back for a moment, basking in the hot light, the speeding car, Tamara's beauty. This was why I had come to Paris, I thought. Back home, a year ago, one glimpse of a Chanel dress had made me crave glamour, and now I had found it. Tamara's eyes flicked toward me, the color of chrome. It was too loud to hear what she said, but I smiled in reply. She reached over and touched me under the chin with a gloved finger, tipping my face toward her. Her eyes moved from my face to the road and back. She gave me a last, approving look and took the wheel in both hands again. I had seen that look before, on Hervé's face, on Guillaume's too. I would ask for the money first thing. We burst out of the green, silent bubble of the bois into a hot, bright day crowded with scrambling taxis and squawking klaxons. People flooded the little streets. Pushcarts crammed with vegetables, flowers, and books inched through the crowds. When we stalled behind an orange and brown horse-drawn sewage truck, Tamara grimaced at the smell, then pitched her car into a pedestrian square and passed the horses, frightening two nuns up onto the plinth of a statue. Tamara looked back at them and laughed, and I nervously followed her lead. We sped along the river and crossed the Pont de la Concorde. The Seine glowed like a sheet of lead foil. Tamara parked in front of an apartment house in the aristocratic seventh. I followed her, led by Sefa, clawed feet clacking, up two flights of stairs to an apartment much grander than any I had ever lived in. My daughter's room, she said, pointing to a door off to the side. I caught a glimpse of a kitchen, too, before we reached the apartment proper. Three wide, handsome rooms, each one leading to the next through French doors, all hung in the same gray velvet as the low couch where Tamara seated me. Both sets of French doors stood open. From the middle room, I could see both the dining table at one end of the apartment and the starkly elegant bed by the far wall of the other. On a low marble table before me sat a glass jar containing the remains of what once might have been a hair ribbon burned to a stiff charcoal curl. Beside the jar sat a bottle of mineral water and a glass, a bunch of grapes, and the skull of a small animal. When the dog sighted the skull, Tamara moved it to a sideboard behind us and poured me a glass of water. We can eat this still life. It was no good, she said, glancing down by way of explanation at the one hint of disorder in her cool, bright flat a torn sketchbook page on the floor. As I nibbled at a proffered grape, Tamara moved quickly through the three rooms, wiping down her dog and gloves with a wet cloth, hanging her cape and hood, shaking out her bobbed blonde hair. Something about Tamara's apartment made me think of the street where I lived, 
which was home to a series of art dealers, but it wasn't the paintings on the walls. The art dealers, as if trying to outdo each other in drabness, hid away their wares like gold bricks. No, it was the smell, a resinous vapor that spindled the room. What's that? I asked, sniffing. Rydelin, she said, gesturing toward a table full of brushes and glass jars. Is that linenseed oil in English? And terrabentine. I do not know the word. I nodded. The grapes are delicious, I said. Even mixed with a sharp oil smell, I like them. Tart skin and sweet pulp, but full of seeds. Once, when I was very poor, I brought home some pastries to draw. I set them on the table here, and then I am sitting down with my tablet here, and I look and I look, and all the time my stomach is saying, eat them, eat them. You ate them? Tamara pulled off her driving gloves while she spoke, revealing long wrists, long fingers, red painted nails, and a wealth of rings, one with a square topaz as big as a walnut. It flashed as she nodded, repeating my words, Slavic and vehement. I ate them. Are you very poor now? I asked, pretending to joke as Tamara vanished behind her bedroom doors. Should I worry about the hundred francs? No, 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 Tamara called from the next room as she exchanged her mauve crepe afternoon frock for a black cotton house dress and a white chef's apron. Reemerging, Tamara looked at me. You understand the job. You do not move. I will paint you for forty-five minutes, then you will rest for fifteen, then forty-five again, and so on for five hours. It is noon now. We will stop at five. Belle Jardiniere would close at six. I needed to show up in uniform at nine the next morning before the store opened. I nodded. The vase is down the hall, or you may go behind the screen, she said, pointing at the dining room. You change there. I knew I had agreed to model, but here it was. I would have to take off my clothes. How many people come in and out of this apartment? I asked warily. No one all day, Tamara said, spreading both hands in a gesture of fiat. And then at five, my housekeeper will come by and make dinner for my mother and daughter. Your mother lives here, too? Oh, no, we are just myself and Kizet. My mother lives close by, and she looks after Kizet when I go out at night. And your husband? I asked, before I could stop myself. Is in Warsaw, she replied curtly. And then, as if to forestall further questions, she crossed the room again. This is for you, she said, unlocking a drawer. She drew a banknote from a gray satin envelope-style purse and set it down on the table by the grapes. One hundred francs, a black dress with a white collar. Thank you, I said. I was relieved to see she was serious about paying me, but even so, I took a long drink of water. I wanted to make it last the moment she owed me, before I picked up the money and owed her. I proudly set down my glass. I'll take it when I go, I said. Behind the screen, in the dining room, I discovered a bathtub, a chamber pot, and a hook on the wall with a single empty hanger. I guess that's for you, I thought, addressing my lucky blue dress. Here we go. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.